every time I talk to my agent, he's like, it's like, we're at a funeral together. And he's just like, yeah, maybe, maybe there'll be some leftover potato salad when we get to the reception. Oh my God. Hi, it's Lindsay Hunter. I'm the host of I'm a Writer But, a podcast where writers talk to a writer about anything. I, I get it. If people don't want to read about like the adult diapers that you wear after you have a baby, like that's totally fine. But let's not pretend that those can't be just as literary as like, I don't know, you know, Philip Roth's direction. <laughs> I wish you a, a wide audience, but you know, for this episode, you know, I feel like maybe people will turn it off a couple minutes in and that's okay with me. I'm a Writer But is a production of Lit Hub Radio and is available now wherever you get your podcasts. The vocation we have chosen is a veil of tears. Does the truth matter? I'll try to approach that by telling you stories of conversations that I had with two of my most beloved women in my life. The first is my mother, and the second is my oldest child, Amy. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, we bring you one of the most memorable talks ever given at the Writers' Conference by the late civil rights champion, Roger Wilkins, in 2002. Roger's great-grandfather was a slave. Two generations later, Roger's uncle, Roy Wilkins, became the legendary leader of the NAACP for over two decades. Three generations removed from the Mississippi slave fields, Roger Wilkins played pivotal roles in the civil rights advancements of both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, and later, as author, columnist, and professor, became a powerful voice of advocacy and hope for black people in America. As Roger tells it, The story of the Wilkins family cannot be unlinked from the story of racism in America. Years ago, I was writing an autobiography. And I was about 40, 45. And so I asked my mother, some questions about our family. And she told me some things I had never heard before. Stories, some of which touched on slavery. Stories that were enormously interesting. And so I looked at her My face screwed up, and I said, well, Mama, why didn't you tell me that years ago? Now, my mother is an extremely intelligent person, Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of Minnesota. She is 95 now, but in her career, she was an extraordinarily effective and successful person 
first black woman to head the YWCA of the United States. She did it for two terms, and as far as I can tell, very successfully. Uh, and she was a very powerful person, very powerful personality. So I said, why didn't you tell me this before? And she looked pensive and she looked sad as she collected her thoughts and she said, well, Roger, I guess in our family, we didn't like to clank our chains. That was one of the saddest things my mother ever said to me because as I have contemplated it over the years, I realized that it was because the culture had inflicted such sustained brutality on black people in order to disable us as citizens and to diminish us that the lies the culture told about us had seeped into the souls of even the strongest black people like my mother. And it's like, it's a, in part what the great black historian Carter Woodson said when he talked about the miseducation of Negroes. And it required us to cover our shame about slavery and the suspicion that we were descended from people who deserved to be enslaved. So we covered that history with a large blanket that even extinguished the contours of the lives of our direct ancestors so that they disappeared into an undifferentiated, groaning black mass. The shame. Now Amy, years ago when she was a about five or six years old, Amy's mother and I took her to Mount Vernon. This was in the 60s. Black power was uh, becoming a refrain heard from black precincts. The Watts riot had already occurred. Black people were seen by most of white America as frightening, violent, destructive. And my work lay in those areas, but this was a day when I was just out with my family to forget that, to relax. Well, we went through Mount Vernon with a group led by a tour guide, and we were the only black people in our group. And as I looked around the grounds, there were no other black people in any other groups that we saw. And there were no black people working for the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, which 
which uh, runs Mount Vernon. And as we went around, we were told about all of the entertaining that the general and Mrs. Washington did. We were told about the farm and all the produce of the farm. We were told about all of the meetings that occurred. over the years of the general's prominence. The one thing we were told was how the work got done. And if you hadn't been thinking clearly, you would have said, boy, that Martha Washington, she was one hell of a housewife. <laughs> so we finally we came to a building, and there was just a sign on it It said, the quarters. So Amy in her little voice said, the quarters, Daddy, what's that? And I said, and uh, there got to be a silence in the group of the white people who were around us. And I said, well, it's the slave quarters, honey, the place where the slaves lived. If, you, if a black person says slaves in 1965 or 66 around a group of white people, silence, the silence of the dead. And in that silence, this little five or six-year-old voice piped up, George Washington owned slaves. Well, what's so great about him then? In that was the kernel of the rage with which so many black people lived. And the spirits of black people in those days, and to some extent even today, range between those two poles, shame and rage. And so, America, for many black people, is a deeply troubling psychic experience. Roger grew up aware from a young age of both his family's and his country's biographies in the matter of race. Through his relatives, he came to see the act of writing as a potent symbol of the importance of black education and freedom of expression, and as a necessary form of protest. By definition, the narrative was always personal. I have now lived, well, I was, I was born 67 years after the end of the Civil War. I have now lived longer th than the time that elapsed from the end of the Civil War to my birth. And in the 70 years that I have lived, we Americans have changed our country in a way that is 
inconceivable from the vantage point of my childhood in Kansas City, Missouri, born in a segregated hospital. My first educational experience was in a one-room segregated schoolhouse. When they closed that, they bust me all across town as a little first grader. Sometimes the white kids used to yell at our bus, monkeys, stuff like that. And nobody wrote in any paper, oh, these poor little children, now they need their neighborhood school, and isn't it a shame to move, bust them? Or blue? And nobody said that. They said, get them over there where they belong. My father was a wonderful man. Taught me how to love words. Gave me the passion to write. He was a fine writer himself. And when he was dying, at the age of 35, at home, he sat in his bed with the royal typewriter sitting on his lap, writing stories and articles for magazines. It was still the Depression, and he would send them away to try to sell them, to try to help pay for our family. And so I got the idea at the age of eight that the typewriter was the thing to use. That was what brave men did. So my father died early in 1941, and he could not have conceived of the world we have now. Couldn't have dreamed of uh, integrated baseball. Colin Powell. Michael Jordan. Condoleezza Rice. Patricia King. Couldn't have imagined it. Could not have imagined that his little boy who learned to love newspapers from the segregated newspaper that he worked on in Kansas City, would someday write editorials for the greatest newspapers in our country and would ultimately come to serve as the first person not named Pulitzer to chair the Pulitzer Prize Board. And I loved him so, he's been such a force in my life that when I sat down to chair that board, I said silently, this is for you, Dad. We live in a world that he would never have known. He was born only 40 years after the end of slavery. How could a man born only 40 years after the end of slavery instill in his child such a love of words? that the child would de be devoted to words and largely fight the battles, make his contributions to the battles for making America whole with his words. How did that happen? My father's grandfather was a Mississippi slave, field slave, but as hard a road in slavery as you could have. He was illiterate. 
He was coal black. He was a sharecropper after that. And he had a boy who was going to grow up also to be a sharecropper. His boy, Willie. Willie got crosswise about a hundred years ago with some white guys who were about to lynch him. And my great-grandfather got Willie out of Mississippi and got his wife out of Mississippi. Well, Willie was my grandfather. So my great-grandfather, the slave, got my grandfather, the field hand, safely out of Mississippi, where he had three children. First was my Uncle Roy, who became very famous as a civil rights leader. The second was my Aunt Armida, who died while she was a student at the University of Minnesota. And the third was my father. Right after my father was born in 1905, his mother died. My grandpa, Willie, was not a, he, he was not a constant worker. He was not, he's, he's not a fellow you'd like in a foxhole either, really. But he, but my, my grandmother had a sister named Elizabeth. And she came down as my grandmother was dying. And my grandmother said to her, please don't let Willie take the children back to Mississippi. So Aunt Elizabeth sent a telegram to her husband, Sam, who's a special car steward on the Great Northern Railroad, and said, the baby is so cute, I'd like to bring him home. Could we raise him? And Sam, who had never seen these kids in his life, sent back word, it's terrible to break up a family, bring them all. The thing that changed these children, who were surely children at risk had they stayed in segregated St. Louis with their feckless father, they could have turned out to be gamblers, crooks, who knows what they would have been. Um, they got to Minnesota. Uncle Sam had a regular job. They were connected to the economy and to American life by Uncle Sam's job. And therefore, the values that were espoused by the family had meaning because the kids could see that work, discipline, led to a world that was better. And they went to the public schools of St. Paul and then to the public university. And both the boys became wonderful, wonderful, wonderful writers. In the wake of the police killing of George Floyd and other black Americans, and in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, the words of Roger Wilkins, who died in 2017 at the age of 85, have never sounded more relevant or vital to the conversation about what kind of great nation America was meant to be and must still become. I'll close this now by saying America is not yet a just and complete place. There's still terrible injustice in our land. The civil rights movement didn't start when Thurgood filed the first complaint in the first case that became Brown Board of Education, and it didn't stop 
when a murderer put a bullet through Martin Luther King. Started when the first black person who understood that she was enslaved stepped off in Virginia and said, this is wrong, I'm going to try to change this. And it won't end until all of us can sit down and honestly say to ourselves, this is a relatively fair country, it's as fair as we can make it, now let's keep it that way. And we're not there yet. We're not nearly there yet. And we did have a great spurt in the 50s and the 60s that made the transformation that I talked about possible. But in this country, we still have the doors of opportunity slammed shut on millions of children. Mainly black, but also Hispanic, also Native American, also poor white in the pockets of white poverty around this country. And it shames us that we as rich and as powerful and as inventive and with such a flexible, wonderful country permit this to continue to occur. It is the continual destruction of American citizens. And why? Well, Reconstruction after the Civil War went along for about 10 or 15 years, and then the country got busy making a lot of money. So it forgot justice and became rich. And the same thing happened after the spurt of the civil rights movement in the end of the last century. We forgot justice, and we got busy getting rich. I don't think that justice requires us to have lots of black people in the Congress and in the White House and on the cabinet. I believe that justice means that we open the doors of opportunity to every child just the way they were opened up for my father, his sister, and his brother. The two boys who grew up survived and they became extraordinarily constructive citizens of the United States. And they created a legacy so that their descendants could try to do the same. I say that if those little black Wilkins children could be saved by our country, then we can create the conditions in our country to save all the kids. That's why at the age of 70, I'm on the school board of the District of Columbia, because I believe that we have a task in front of us today that is as morally compelling in 2002 as getting voting rights in Mississippi was in 1962. And I am hopeful, and I am optimistic. Not that I will see this justice in my own time, but that I believe we are capable of being aroused from time to time to do great deeds for ourselves. And I believe that it rests 
our, our, my optimism rests with the work of these founders who provided us with a framework not only in which we could govern ourselves, but in which we could aspire to be better. It's the greatest gift that any people could ever give. So this black person can love and revere men who own slaves because he's got to be able to deal with complexity and existential ambiguity if you're going to be a grown-up person and be a constructive citizen of this wonderful country. I am, indeed, a patriot. I do love this country. Patriotism is sometimes described as the mansion of one's fathers. Nobody, nobody has contributed more to this country than the slaves who labored and bled worked and died to enrich our country, to make it better. The truth about them sets me free. The truth about our slave-owning founders sets me free. I don't want to go I'm not sure, my mama's 95, that's, 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 as they say in baseball, that's pretty deep in the count. I'm not sure I want to go that deep in the count, but I'll tell you something. As long as I'm breathing and they're still counting over me, I'm going to be working. Using my freedom, using my country to make it better for everybody. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations, at lidhub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Keep safe, everyone. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios. 